Here on a, a, a glorious sunny August afternoon um, in Peasmore, a little village in West Berkshire, and I'm at the headquarters of KBIS Insurance with Guy Prest and 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 Harriet Walker. So, Guy, probably if I can ask you first of all, is 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 who are KBIS Insurance? What what's your what's your business? Okay, well, KBIS has been running in its current form for thirty years. Um, myself and my wife set it up in nineteen ninety one. We bought up a small bloodstock insurer and um, decided very quickly that the money was far more, uh, the insurance business was far stronger in the leisure market rather than the bloodstock area and um, went towards the volume end of the business, which we are very much part of. And uh, we've specialised, really, we've grown at the same time as Vets Fee Insurance has really taken off. And that's what's driven our business. We're now insuring horses and anything equestrian. So we'll do the horses, we'll do the liability for the businesses, we'll do the properties, and we'll do the horse boxes. Good. So how, how does it then, how does the insurance company work, insurance industry work? Do you sort of effectively get the money in and then pay out all the claims? Or okay, so KBIS is an intermediary and we have binding authorities with different underwriters for different sections of businesses. So KBIS doesn't take the risk. We act as the uh, underwriters delegated authority effectively so that we will discuss with them what we want to do and we'll agree rates and prices and so forth. And then they'll give us a contract for a period of time to write business in certain sections. Um, so KBIS is, is not the risk taker, the insurer is. Um, and ultimately we have to make sure we can produce profits to those insurers. So the rates we charge need to be profitable um, and vets fee insurance and equine insurance um, has been marginal for a long time. Um, but the markets have got much tighter in the last five to 10 years. And so underwriters expect a reasonable return. And so it's from our point of view, it's making sure that we're on top of the rating and that we're charging the right amount so that at the end of the year, the underwriters can make a small profit. And the underwriters, that's based in London, in, in Lloyd's? or So it's a mixture of things. The main underwriter on our horse contract is QIC, Qatari Insurance Company Europe. Um, and they obviously are players, that the Qataris in the, the bloodstock world. Um, they have a big insurance area and we actually go into their agricultural section. And um, they we've got a very good relationship with them. We've been with them since 2015. And they've got a really professional team who do all the analysis and make sure um, that we're charging the right amounts. They look in great detail at what we do. So, for instance, they'll look at the age of the horses and what generates more claims. And I think some of the stats we've got on this, actually, we should probably share with the veterinary industry because there's some quite revealing mm -hmm. stuff that comes out of it. Um, for instance, a horse in its first year of new ownership is far more likely to have a claim than at any other stage. And um, whether that's because the change of ownership or because some horses are sold with a problem, um, that's probably a moot point. Uh, but um, we've done some detailed analysis of the age of the horse and the risk. And interestingly, unlike pet insurance, where the older a pet gets, the higher the risk is, 
horses as they get to their retirement age um, actually become a good risk from our point of view. And that's mainly because they don't do an awful lot. We've seen in the last few years that the sort of policies carrying on beyond the age of 15. So that's sort of that's likely to continue then. The, the... That's a reflection of that, that actually old horses for us are good business. So, you, you, I mean, you, you said about sort of, you know, the, the, the business side of it. Where does all the money go? What cost? What is the cost in claims? So, I mean, our underwriters are very straightforward. They're looking for us to make um, 10 points on, on the gross turnover. 10 points is 0.1%? So 10%. 10%. Um, they would have costs which would be um, included in that. So, you know, then by a lot of the insurance standards now, um, a lot of insurance won't look at things unless it's making about 25%. Um, but because this is a volume business, the one thing about it, it's very pr predictable. And if we look at the rating and understand what's going on properly, then it's not going to have huge spikes. So they're happy with a fairly low level of profit. Um, what happens is that we um, take a commission for running the business um, and all the rest of the money gets passed on to the underwriters. The underwriters form a pool. Um, they run the contracts on an annual basis, although it goes on every year after year, just so that they can analyze it from an annual basis. Um, and so we very carefully look at each month into the year and analyze how the claims are going. And it's interesting, by halfway through a year, we know fairly certainly where it's gonna finish at the end of the period. And where you consider that the tail on our, so if we write business for 12 months, the claims on that business will go on for 36 months. So we'll have sold a policy on the last day of December of that year, that will run for 12 months. And after that, um, the policy will have an extension of 15 months from the last day. So actually, it's um, it's forty months, not thirty six months. Just because it keeps 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 rolling over. So um, and as it, how many how many horses make a claim per year then? If, if you know, so the stats haven't varied hugely. It's twenty to twenty two percent. That's notifications of a claim, and most of those actually go on and make a claim, and yeah. that's covering everything. So that would be covering vets fees, mortality, and for instance, tax claims, which aren't huge. So anything that's on the policy. And what, what is it that, that, that people are claiming for? Is it, is it colic surgeries or? or... So that I'm sure you know, the, the biggest claim is lameness. And yep. So lameness is the predominant thing. Um, I haven't got the stats right in front of me. I should have done that. But uh, colic is obviously a significant claim in terms of value but it's not that significant in terms of frequency. Yeah. What, what's your ideal case then? I mean, I've got some notes I wrote here is, is presumably a colic is ideal for you because it was, you know, the horse was normal yesterday. Yeah. It was in a field yeah. and today it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's ill and there's a set amount you're, you're likely to have to pay. Is, is that the, the sort of ideal insurance uh, case? I don't think we probably have an ideal. I think the answer is that the ideal claim from our point of view is where it's clear cut that um, the horse has been insured and everything was advised to us before it came on cover and that what happens after that we we go with um, i think it's probably easier to say what's the problem claim the problem claims are where it happens very close to the inception of a policy and particularly if it's not a recent purchase and so there's always a question of whether or not something pre-existed the policy um, we have a slightly longer time 
before you get full cover with us, which is 45 days. Well, a lot of the industry has 14 days. Um, and we found the 45 days people seem comfortable with. I would add to that, if you have it fully vetted and you insure it at purchase, then it becomes instantly full cover. Right. So, so with a full five-stage vetting, we're, yep. we're insured on, on, on day one. Yeah. But if you just, just want it quickly insured, then, you, yeah. you know. And would that cover things that obviously weren't, um, um, you know, pre-existing? So say you'd, after you've had it a week, you take it out and, and, and the horse gets hit on the road. And, and So anything that's an accidental external injury is going to be fully covered from day one. And that doesn't matter. The 45 days is only applying to sickness and disease. So if you insure any horse with us and it has an accident, it will be covered from day one. And if lameness is, is the main thing, I mean, are there any any things you don't pay for? I mean, particularly, I was thinking of years back, MRI scans were, were, were often sort of disputed and limited. Yeah, I think that's I, largely gone now. I think, I don't know what the NFU do, but they certainly only used to pay 50% of the MRIs, but I'm not sure whether they've changed that policy. We've always taken the view that if MRI is needed, then it should be done and we'll pay it in full. Um, the, uh, the interesting thing I would say, and I don't know what Harriet feels about this, but we probably see more appropriate use of MRI these days. There was a point when that was the kind of go-to thing. And I think some of these things follow a fashion. Now we see it being used very appropriately and very much to the benefit of the horse. Is that your experience? Yeah, and I think the same with brain scans. Um, but from a from a KBIS point of view, there, there aren't any diagnostics that we don't pay for. The only limitation is we won't pay for repeats in terms of if you're if you're a client and your vet has x-rayed your horse, you're not happy with what they've told you, so you go to a different vet down the road the day after and get those x-rays repeated, we're not going to to pay for it twice. But if it's recommended a follow-up scan in Absolutely. six months, that's covered. Absolutely. Yeah, if it's a recheck, it's just yeah. Yeah. the repeat. Good. And um, so what, what about, if move on to a bit the finances of it then, what about the insurance limit? Now, that's been £5,000 £5, for, well, 5,000 years, really. It's, it's, I mean, when's that going to move up? Well, I think you're wrong there, actually. We've had it at £6,000 since 2015. And we, well, asked. So we offer a choice of policies, the first point. Um, policy that is most popular is 6,000 per instant and seven and a half for colic surgery. So that's been like that now for seven years. And is that a premium policy? That, 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 you so know, what people offered? just have to choose. Yes, it's, it's a premium policy. They can buy it with two different levels of excess. The higher the excess, the lower the premium. Um, and But we still offer down to um, three and a half thousand and three thousand and people do still buy those policies but most of them could also buy the full cover with the older horses sometimes we won't offer the full cover um, because I think if you've got a, a fairly old horse then is it appropriate to spend a lot of money on a colic surgery I mean that's a personal one but equally we take the view that most customers with older horses don't want that level of cover um, but certainly we've been offering more than 5,000 for a long time now. And um, the other thing that we also do is we have a 15-month extension period on all policies, not 12 months. And we felt that so many things need more than 12 months to fully recover. And so we felt fifth, and we were every, being constantly rung up 
saying, could we extend the policy, which we did. Um, so we changed it to 15 months as standard. So this is a horse that um, towards the end of the policy has surgery for, for, for lameness and you, and you think it, it needs 15 months before you can sort of establish if it's genuine. It, do, it doesn't matter or... where it is in the policy from the instant starting, it gets 15, 15 months, months cover. Mm -hmm. And so the time limit on, on an individual instant is caused by the instant time, not from where it is in the policy. So it's 15 months from, so if it happened on the last day of the policy, for instance, they still get 15 months cover from that point. So I'm going to ask you about the insurance forms then. I mean, uh, I suppose the first thing to say is it's, it's, it's nice to be reminded of the 1990s, but uh, <laughs> why, why are we filling out paper forms in this, this day and age? Um, I, I think the whole industry has been slow on this. We are more and more, and we're expecting customers to fill in electronic forms. And um, we've just spent a huge amount of money on new IT systems, which is still in the, so it's working in house. The next phase of it is to get it out so that we have customer portals. Um, and basically we want to go entirely digital and we're not far from it at the moment. And it, sorry, Harry. I was just gonna say, we are looking into it. So we do have an online form for clients to complete their sections. And what then happens is that emails them a copy of the vet section to go to the vets. What we're looking at is changing it so that that vet section is then emailed direct to vets and they can complete it fully online. And then it comes back into us. It often seems to be a problem for us that the people processing the forms don't seem to have much veterinary understanding. We get some strange questions back sometimes. I mean, uh, we can only talk for cavers here and I mean, Harry, you, you say what the team is. So we have six people here who are dedicated claims handlers. And yeah, so there, um, our claims team manager is a retired veterinary nurse. And then we have two other equine veterinary nurses, ex, um, within the team. Um, the others are made up of equine graduates. So from our point of view, we always hire from the equine industry first, insurance industry second. We can teach insurance. It's much harder to teach equine. And part of our recruitment process from a claims point of view is ensuring that that veterinary knowledge, the basics are there. You know, we're not going to pretend to be vets and be able to, to decipher all of the reports, but we have a good understanding to be able to have those conversations. And the moment we need to, we'd use a veterinary consultant. So if it was very technical, then it would be handed over to a veterinary consultant and that would be an experienced vet um, who's probably um, not practicing full time, but he'll be an experienced equine specialist and will understand a lot about the industry. So what, what about exclusions then? I think lots of people get in a, in a, in a tangle about this or quite often the uh, sort of, you know, after a horse is 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 vetted as well, is there is there a way we could handle this better? Because it, it, it's obviously a huge problem if if a vet goes, examines a horse, passes it at the at the vetting, and 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 then it comes back a week later that it's going to have both hocks excluded. Or I, th I think you've got to appreciate here that the interests of the insured are not necessarily exactly the same as the interests of the insured insurer so that one's buying the horse they want to enjoy it and and get a lot of satisfaction out of it the other's got a commercial relationship which they don't have to provide cover on 
So it's, you know, these are the terms we're offering um, and there's no obligation for them to ensure it. Obviously, we're, we hope we're really professional about the exclusions. We have a, various people dedicated to making sure we handle them correctly. Um, the, I think the, the big point here is, and there's two, two areas here. One is the, the exclusions as a result of a new purchase, which has been vetted. And the other is that where you've got a horse that's been insured for some time and had a claim and then gets an exclusion. Dealing with the first one where the, the horse is vetted, um, we would take the view that we're not too picky, but if something is noted that is going to significantly increase the risk from an insurance point of view, then um, you know we're going to apply a reasonable exclusion. If it's a grey one, then we're probably going to apply an exclusion and say, after 12 months, we will consider lifting it if it hasn't become a problem. Um, and so, for instance, I think a good example of that would be a slightly positive flexion test. Um, it might be something you say on balance, I think it's a risk worth taking to the owner. Well, from the insurer's point of view, you know, they don't get the upside of the horse being enjoyable. They're just taking on a commercial relationship. So they're likely to turn around and say, we'll have an exclusion now, but depending on the severity, we'll look at lifting that exclusion if it doesn't create a problem. So I, th I would hope that we're reasonable and you can always talk to us about it and we'll have a, a really sensible conversation with any vet. But I think the starting point is that what the owner may accept as a risk and the horse is ideal, but it has these minor problems, they have to accept that not all of them are necessarily insurable. And I think going back to what you said earlier, Guy, we know from our data analysis that a horse is more likely to have a claim in its first year of insurance. Therefore, understandably, us on behalf of underwriters are a bit more cautious from um, insuring a horse within its first year of transferring that ownership. So, so what about then, say, um, mild toe-in confirmation that the horse is a little bit pigeon-toed at, at, at the vetting? Is that the sort of example of one you'd exclude for, for 12 months or? or, or... I think, uh, I mean, um, my view would be, we would depend on the severity, but if it was very mild, I think we'd just accept that. So it's slightly, there is another aspect. It depends what it's expected to do. If that horse is going to be used as a family run around and hack, it's going to be fine. Um, if it was expected to do something at a very high level, then it could become more significant. And it's, you know, you're vetting a horse for a specific activity and what you would pick up on for one situation would be different to another. And I can remember um, a vet ringing me up and saying, you're going to be surprised I passed this horse, but the expectations are that it's not going to do an awful lot. And I don't think it's going to be a problem for what they want to use it for. And, you know, it wasn't very sound is the honest answer. Um, and we insured it and it was never a claim, but there was very low expectations of what that horse was gonna do. Um, if you spend a lot of money on a horse and you're expecting it to become a good competition horse, then A, it's gonna be under more pressure and also you're gonna be more critical of the level of soundness. So I think, you know, it's never a black and white situation because it does depend what the expectations are. And when it comes to confirmation as well, I think we'll be led by the vet as to whether they thought it would predispose the horse to a, a condition further down the line. 
what I think, they think that risk is. I think different size front feet is 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 a common one. People people get quite stressed about that the feet are just slightly different size at the the pre-purchase examination, but the horse seems completely yeah. sound. Yeah. What do I mean? What would your advice be? First of all, is is should we write that down on the vetting certificate? I think if if anything you see that um, you consider to be um, not normal, um, I think it should be noted. Um, I think from Cavis' point of view, we'd be very reasonable and we won't be overzealous on applying exclusions. Um, and I would hope that all the staff involved here who will be doing that, A, are suitably experienced and can use their judgment. Um, the interesting thing, take it a stage further, so we do lift quite a few exclusions, um, but I was looking at a claim today uh, where we'd lifted the exclusions and six months later, the thing we'd lifted the exclusion for became a claim. And so, you know, that I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying that the reality is that we're right, riding a fine line between looking after the insurer and giving the best answer to the customer. And so the insurers expect us to look after their interests, but they're realists. They realize that, you know, it's a commercial situation and we have to be reasonable. So in that case, I don't think there was anything about doing it wrong. We took a, a gamble on whether that was going to become a significant condition or not. It has. Um, and so, you know, there are times when we lift exclusions and it goes wrong. There are other times possibly when we could have lifted exclusion, we choose not to and it never becomes a problem. What about related conditions? I think this is one I, I often struggle with. I get asked, is this is this condition related? And, and there seems to be no consistency that sometimes clients seem to be able to bully their insurers into into to do two separate claims, one for the coffin joint and one for the navicular bone that are clearly related. And other times you, you seem to get tangled up with it, what seem to be clearly separate conditions. So for, I don't know, 10 plus years, we've had very clear definitions of a claim. A claim from our point of view is a claim incident. It's not a claim condition. So the horse presents with whatever, whatever is found from that investigation is a single claim. Um, and if you did an investigation today and find that it's left four lane and that starts to clear up, but during the process of it happening, you then find that it's got a, an issue in its back or as is often the case, you know, there are multiple things going on. We would consider all of those to be one condition. So one instant, sorry, not one condition. So a lot of the related thing isn't relevant from our point of view on, on a claim because we're saying if you present whatever you find from that is all one claim. Um, and sometimes, you know, when the limits are being ha hit, and particularly with people who underinsure for the vet's fees, they end up um, quickly hitting a limit, and then they'll start pushing, oh, I want this to be two conditions. And so it, it works both ways. So originally when we were doing this, the excess was at a level where people didn't want us to divide it all into multiple conditions and hence why we've gone down the routes of calling it an instant. But now you get the situation where they run out of money, so they want it divided into different things. Um, and so we try and avoid getting into an argument about things being related. What we're saying is that if the horse presents with multiple conditions, that's all gonna be one claim. And it's where, the way it presents. Um, and I think we're finding that that works well. I think it's fair to say a lot of the competition don't have such defined wordings. 
and they get themselves slightly in a, in a twist over is it related, isn't it related? And so I don't think they're necessarily perhaps as consistent as we are. What about x-rays then, x-rays of vettings? Do you have um, a clear policy about, about what x-rays are needed and recommended? Uh, we very much do. I'll let Harriet talk about it from a personal point of view. As someone who buys horses occasionally, and I've always I've looked at what goes on here because I think there's an awful lot of horses that are potentially really good horses that are kicked out because of what it shows on an x-ray. Um, I would kind of, unless it's absolutely necessary, not necessarily x-ray, um, but it rather depends on the amount of money. But I'll let Harriet explain what the what the arrangement is. Yeah, so we have different requirements depending on the value of the horse and the type of cover that's purchased. So we require x-rays on a horse which is purchased over 10,000 and those x-ray requirements will differ to a horse which is valued at over 20,000 pounds. They're different sort of sets of views. Um, and again, we require additional x-rays if the client is purchasing permanent loss of use cover as opposed to just mortality and veterinary fees. If we don't require x-rays for the cover purchased, but a client has them done, we would still need to see them because they become a material fact um, that we would need to assess as the policy. Um, and they're then sent to... So even, even if you haven't requested them, but if they're taken, you, you need to see them? Yes, because the... The client has instructed a vet to carry out the x-rays to determine that risk of purchase. We then need to see them to determine the risk from an insurance point of view. And more from the client's perspective as well, they then know whether any exclusions would be placed as a result of that, rather than getting to the point of a claim. And we find this quite a lot, that they haven't been disclosed. And you then see in the clinical history x-rays taken for purchase we would then need to request them at that stage. So it then holds up a claim. And you would have the situation, presumably, of, of finding changes that were pre-existing and then decline, declining the claim. Yes. And I think this is this is a quite a common thing, isn't it? That, that you know, sort of, sort of clients um, will think they can say, oh, I, I won't claim for this, so uh, it, it, it won't count. But yeah. once they're on a computerized system, it's... Yeah there for everyone. I think x-rays throw up a real issue about, and it relates to exclusions. Um, you can buy a horse and the vet will advise you of certain things and the x-rays may show certain things. It doesn't mean they shouldn't buy the horse, but what it will mean is that they'll buy the horse and have parts of it insured and parts not insured. And if they like the horse enough, they then have to make a risk assessment themselves as to whether they're prepared to go on and buy it knowing that the exclusions apply. So if that becomes a problem, it's not going to be covered by the policy. And, you know, insurance is all about risk transfer. And in the ideal world, we take on the whole risk. In reality, inevitably, there's a, a grey area where there are things thrown up. And that's, you know, the customer then has to come back and make a decision. Do I go ahead and buy or do I not? I think the big problem in terms of disputes comes because very often we see it once they've made that decision and the vet said to them, yes, fine, go ahead and buy it. But there are obviously things there and there's probably been a discussion between them and the vet about the risks. Um, and I think probably the best advice as the attending vet is to say, see what the insurers think before you go ahead and purchase it. 
because then they can make an assessment themselves about, yes, I'll go ahead, but I know I'm not covered for that. Or no, the risk isn't what I want to take. And you can turn this around quickly if, if we We'd turn bring it around up a... in a day in most cases. Yeah. Um, and I think this, with high value horses, we definitely see ourselves being used as the final arbiter. Um, and very often we get the x-rays and the attending vet who's done the, um, the vetting and everything probably isn't an expert at reading them. I'm sure he's very competent, but they quite like the fact that responsibility is passed on to our. And, you know, that's the way it is. And, and um, we would try and use, you know, some of the best people in the country to look at those x-rays. So I don't think our opinion of them would be different from any other vet. Um, but the, the problem for the attending vet doing the vetting is that they can get between a rock and a hard place if the purchase has been made and what they can they perhaps didn't properly explain to the client that there is a bit of a risk here and it's worth them talking to the insurers before they buy it. Let's, let's move on to loss of use insurance. I know this, this can be a, a, a thorny one. I think one of the questions people often come up with is, is why don't you pay out early on some cases? They're often a clear economic loss that this, this horse just isn't going to do. But it often seems that insurance companies will force us to go through the rigmarole of, of six months of rest and such like when, when you know, we know the prognosis is poor. Why, 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 do, why do we have to do that? This is one for Harriet. Generally, we do try to do an early settlement, specifically in loss of use cases. I think it becomes tricky when you start then crossing over between permanent loss of use cover and mortality cover. If a horse is insured with mortality and not permanent loss of use, that's then when it becomes much more of a grey area. From our point of view, we would rather settle the permanent loss of use claim early because chances are it's more economic for us as well because they won't have reached the maximum on the veterinary fees. So why would we want to be on risk for up to 6,000 when that's clearly not in the horse's best interest from a veterinary point of view and from what the client has decided? Um, I don't think we're, would I be correct in saying that um, we're not seeing that many disputed loss of use claims? Correct. I think, you know, certainly we've taken this approach quite a while ago that the sooner you can settle it and accept, that's good. I mean, I would just qualify here that I know one horse that came second at Badminton that was a loss of use claim. That so, was my next question is to say, <laughs> has, has a horse ever returned to exercise following a loss of use claim? Yeah. So, Obviously, apart from that one. <laughs> I mean, the reason that they generally take longer is to establish the permanency, to establish that that condition is going to limit the career of that horse. So it cannot return to that level of function um but generally speaking we would always try for an early settlement if it's clear-cut and we certainly don't have a big issue about seeing loss of use horses appearing fully fit you know they are compromised there's no doubt about it um and it's a question of managing those conditions and how much does it restrict what it does um so i would actually say additional to this i think loss of use is bought less now than it used to be um, and I think people really, the, the thing they want to do is they probably want to insure it for mortality and vet's fees first. And we're seeing people often buy loss of use in the first and second year of ownership and then drop it. 
by which stage they've effectively written off the cost of buying it. Um, and it's, you know, it, it undoubtedly has its place. Um, but um, I, I don't think we find it that challenging to, to settle loss of use claims. We're not having, I can't think of any dispute we've had that's been ongoing related to a loss of use claim recently. Ultimately, our approach is to hand that over to the independent veterinary advisor that we use. We would, as soon as we get that permanent loss of use report from the vet, we hand it over and they then have a vet to vet discussion. Is this permanent? Is it an early settlement? What are the stages that need to happen? And that's a vet to vet conversation. And are they still free as branded, the loss of use cases? That still happens? It still happens. It's very difficult to arrange because there is one, possibly two people in the country covering, well, actually covering England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland um, to be able to do that freeze brand. So I suppose a sort of few final things then to finish up with is, will we always have vets fees insurance? Is, is... I, I think um, as long as it can make money for underwriters, there will always be vets fee insurance. Um, the equine market uh, is more restricted than the pet market and there are less players out there. Um, and I think that's largely around to run this business. You need a lot of people who understand the industry. Um, and it's not quite the same numbers game as the pet side, because obviously there aren't as many insured horses as there are dogs and cats. Uh, but we certainly, and the reason we use the insurers we do uh, is that the London market and particularly Lloyd's market isn't best suited to volume business. Um, and so we, that's why we go to a, a specialist non Lloyd's market. Um, but as long as we can make sure that they feel that they're making adequate returns on it, they will still be doing it. But I think the important thing here is that, you know, it's a commercial relationship. There are times when the decisions made by us, um, will at times seem slightly harsh, but you know, it's a policy with defined terms and conditions. Um, and it's not a charity at the end of the day, but we monitor our complaints constantly and we don't have huge numbers of complaints. We have a handful of complaints that go to the ombudsman. And in the last three years, we've not had any of them turned over. So the ombudsman's always found in our favor. And they are also, I mean, there's a big issue with the FCA who regulate us um, and us treating clients fairly. It's really important that we show what we do and how we do it. Well, our policy wordings are straightforward. Um, we explain things adequately. Um, and, you know, we're, we're a customer facing business and we're only as good as the service we provide. And so I think, you know, the future is that there will always be um, vets fee insurance for horses. But the one thing is for certain, it's getting more and more expensive every year. And that cost isn't related to us making more money. It's, it's related to the charges that are made. And I'm not criticizing vets here. I'm just saying you can do far more now to fix a horse than you could 15 years ago. And possibly there's a lot, I suppose the most expensive thing, there's far more diagnostics. So, you know, our costs purely relate to the costs of actually treating and diagnosing the horse. If um, anyone's been listening to this and been very impressed, is it, are we now able to go out and sort of say to our clients, look, you know, sort of think, you know, 
this horse is very suitable for purchase. Um, I think you'll be very happy with it, but you should insure it. And I think KBIS is a really good insurance company. Is, is that legal? Can we do that? So what you can't do is advise on insurance. So if they showed you two policies, so one with KBIS, one with Pet Plan, and you said, I think you should go with that, that's offering insurance advice. But what you can do is you can say, you know, I think you should insure it. And if they say, what limits should I look for? You should explain to them what likely costs are. So for instance, showing that colic surgery is likely to cost more than £5,000 and that actually getting £6,000 is quite an advantage per incident. Um, you can certainly say, and I don't think you're giving insurance advice here, you could say personally, I've dealt with all of them and I find X company very easy to deal with. Um, so if you're giving that kind of personal advice, you don't get into the nitty gritty of the insurance, then I think you're just giving your experience then you're in a, in a safe place. What problems have you had with vets? Are they always scrupulously honest? Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, in principle. I think the problem is that occasionally vets get to a position where they feel they, their duty of care is to support the client and that they overzealously um, back up a claim and perhaps don't disclose everything that's been going on. And the trouble is, you know, as we were talking about earlier, the clinical records generally are pretty thorough. And so if they say something and it's not supported by the clinical records, we will spot it. Um, I, I think the big thing is the vet needs to say exactly the same thing to the client as he does to us. And if you do that and you express your complete opinion to the client, and tell us about it, then you're in a very good place. I think it's a very tricky position to be in from a veterinary point of view, to be honest, because the insurance contract is between us and the client. Essentially, it's it's nothing to do with you as a vet, but you are the beneficiary of a claim being paid. And from that point of view, you're not the one receiving documents. So when you're told that there's a problem, you may not be presented with all of the facts as to why a claim has been denied, why an exclusion has been placed. And I think the best thing to do is, is contact us. We are happy. We have clients' permission to discuss it, their policy with, with vets. And we're always more than happy to explain why a decision's been made and also advise on the information that we need to be able to dispute that decision or overturn that decision or if we can't then we can explain that directly. Guy Prest, Harriet Walker, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Uh, very good. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.